Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone, and is a project of EEI, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Vietor, Vice President of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by someone who's been in the electric industry for quite some time, Beverly Marshall, who's the Vice President of Governmental Affairs at the Nuclear Energy Institute. And we invited Bev on because we're going to talk about nuclear, what's going on with legislation, how the Congress and other bodies are working to support nuclear. So with that, welcome, Bev. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for having me this morning. I'm happy to be here. So let's start at the top. Can you tell our audience about the Nuclear Energy Institute or NEI and your role there? Certainly. The Nuclear Energy Institute is actually a trade association, and our mission is to promote the use and growth of nuclear energy, largely through efficient operations and effective policy. We are a member service organization, and so we do this on behalf of our 317 members in 15 countries. For those of you who aren't familiar with the industry, we currently have 93 reactors in 28 states, which produce about 20% of the generation in the U.S. and over 50% of the clean energy produced. To ensure that policies, both at the state and federal level, support nuclear energy, we seek to provide what we call a unified voice before Congress, the executive branch and state legislatures, as well as certain international organizations and venues on key policies. My role in that capacity is, as Vice President of Government Affairs, to lead a team of currently 13 colleagues that focus on state, federal, and international issues that are important to our member company. That makes a lot of sense. We're here in Washington or the greater Washington area. There are two big discussions going on here. There's what on earth is going on with Build Back Better, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But there's also this enormous success and just big piece of legislation that passed in the infrastructure bill. There's a bunch of money in it and a, a bunch of infrastructure priorities that were pursued by the Biden administration and then ultimately Congress. Can you tell us about the nuclear provisions in that bill or components of that bill that are going to have the most impact on nuclear? Certainly. Let me just start before I get into a little detail by saying that there is growing bipartisan support for nuclear energy. We saw that in the last several years already, and 2021 was another great example of that. And it resulted in things like the Infrastructure Bill and the Build Back Better Act both demonstrate that Congress and this administration are committed to both preserving the existing fleet of the plants that are operating today, as well as accelerating the deployment of advanced technologies. In the infrastructure bill for the existing fleet, they included a $6 billion civil nuclear credit program often called in Washington, D.C., the Grants for Plants provision. It focused on preserving nuclear generation in competitive electricity markets around the country. This provision was well-intentioned, but it did provide a lot of uncertainty 
for the operators of those plants in various states. Some of the uncertainties result in how the government would implement the program, who would actually qualify, how it would fit with state programs already in place. And so the industry continues to advocate for a production tax credit for those plants. But this grant program is now the law of the land, and we appreciate the support that we got in Congress for preserving those plans, and we are working with VOE on the implementation of that, but it's not clear yet what the interplay would be between a grant program and a possible production tax credit if and when it is actually passed into law as well. Also of great importance in the infrastructure bill to the broader nuclear energy industry, it included several provisions for clean energy technology of particular note, it provides enormous benefit for the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. Specifically, it included $2.4 billion for the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program currently underway at DOE for fiscal years 22 through 25. And that alone will help us avoid our annual push for adequate funding for these programs. Sorry, but uh-huh. ask, ask about that. There are a couple of particular projects that have come up in, in my conversations in states. Governors are pretty excited about that project in Idaho. What is that? Is that a small modular reactor project over there that's being done with the Idaho National Lab? So that's one that's come up. And then there's this other project. It's a demonstration project at Air Force in Alaska, which I think is a micro reactor. Are those funding mechanisms you were just talking about? Is it allocated to those projects or is it available to new projects that might come up? No, the money is allocated to the two ARDP program projects that were selected during the last administration. One was to a group that was led by TerraPower and they are pursuing that plant in Wyoming. And then the other one was awarded to XL Energy. So this funding is fundamentally for that. Funding mechanisms for other projects and research and development activities at DOE will go through the annual appropriations process. This money was just for the demonstration projects that I mentioned, what are called Pathway 1 demonstrations at DOE. The project in Alaska, as I understand it, is actually a Defense Department project that is funded through DOE or DOD appropriations, and that is a micro-reactor. Very helpful. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No problem. Just a couple of other points about the infrastructure bill. Um, It also established a demonstration program for clean hydrogen hubs, one of which is required to be from nuclear energy. Work will continue on to determine how DOE selects the fight for that, but because that's some part of our future as well, hydrogen is, we're excited about that opportunity for a hydrogen hub. And then they did make changes to the loan program. They include provisions for intellectual property protections and some feasibility studies for siting, which, as you well know, in the utility, energy, electricity world, siting is always an issue. So overall, an enormously helpful piece of legislation. Well, you kind of alluded to it a minute ago when you were talking about grants for plants. There's another provision that's gotten a lot of interest in It's that nuclear tax credit or uh, production tax credit that you alluded to that I think is a component of the Build Back Better package. Can you talk about that program and how it will work and also 
some of the other things that exist in the Build Back Better package at the moment. Sure. Just as an overarching comment, uh, as you noted, the Senate's still negotiating to try to determine what can be passed by the Senate for a Build Back Better package. But in terms of total dollars, the version that was passed by the House, it could actually have the potential to provide more benefit to our industry than even the infrastructure bill did. Most noteworthy, as you mentioned, it included the House version, a new production tax credit for the existing fleet. I mention it as a new program because it's always easier to extend an existing program than to sometimes establish a new tax credit. The credit is set at $15 a megawatt hour, while the value is reduced if the plant revenues exceed $25 a megawatt hour. Importantly, it applies to all nuclear plant owners, including those that are publicly owned. And the second component that's particularly important for the operators is those eligible for the credit. It can be received as a direct payment from the government, which is enormously helpful. This house-passed version is a six-year program. We would like it to be 10 years, and we do have some allies in the Senate that would like it to be 10 years as well. So we'll keep working on that as things evolve. Our issues are really not what's holding up the Build Back Better Act, as you well know. It's really other parts of it and the size of the package in total. So We remain vigilant to try to make sure that our issues are passed into law somewhere through some vehicle, but a lot of uncertainty regarding that. I'll also mention a few other things that are in the House Pass version that were of great importance to the industry. It also restructures tax credits for new clean electricity deployment, as you know. The Act extends the wind production tax credit and the solar investment tax credit for five years. These technology-specific credits, including the one that is used for deploying advanced nuclear plants, will then be replaced by a clean electricity production credit. This credit will then apply equally to all clean electricity production. And the value of it is $15 per megawatt hour for the first 10 years of operation. This credit is to remain available until carbon emissions from the electricity production are 25% below the 2021 level, which effectively removes the previous cap that was available for advanced production tax credits. It also increases the low guarantee authority by $40 billion and it creates a new tax credit to incentivize the production of hydrogen from low carbon electricity, uh, including from nuclear energy. It provided $500 million for the development of domestic high assay, low enriched uranium fuel, which is important for the advanced reactors. There's a lot of really good stuff in the infrastructure bill, but the focus on climate is really gonna require more investment. And so much of what's in this Build Back Better package our tax credits to spur that investment on. And I, I stand in line with you in hoping that we can figure out how to get more money for nuclear facilities all across the country, because practically speaking, they are the largest emissions-free resource. And the fact that they operate as base load is just incredibly important. All right. So that's kind of what's going on at the federal level. I know there's a lot there. But there was a pretty big piece of legislation that passed uh, at the state level in Illinois last year. Can you give us just a high-level overview of 
what was in that bill and how it's going to impact the nuclear fleet in that state? The larger nuclear legislative conversation in Illinois actually started some years ago. And much like many other states, priority issues like clean energy were really sidelined as states dealt with COVID response in 2020. In 2021, the legislative session picked up again where they left off pre-pandemic. But at the end of the day, the carbon mitigation credit provision was included in the legislation, and this provides an opportunity for plants in Illinois to be compensated for the emissions-free attribute sufficient to ensure that these plants stay in operation. Let me just say at this point that this program became part of the final bill, we believe, because we had incredible champions in and out of the legislature defending the program. And at the same time, the communities surrounding the plants, their employees, the families, they all came together and overwhelmingly supported the pro-nuclear advocacy effort that was underway. Under the bill, the nuclear plants will submit applications to the Illinois Power Agency, and that it will include information about their operations, their emission impacts, finances, and the details of this whole implementation will take some time to be fully seen. But just saving these plants in Illinois, uh, along with a unanimous vote to renew the zero emission credit for the New Jersey plants were incredibly important outcomes in 2021. There's a lot going on in the nuclear space, and there are a lot of policymakers at the federal and state level who appreciate the attributes of nuclear power and are trying to do everything they can to ensure that our existing plants continue to operate, as well as figuring out new technologies for what the future of nuclear is going to be. One, do you think that's fair characterization? Two, what do you think the trends are in the nuclear industry overall right now? I do agree with you, and I think everyone at NEI in the industry would as well. Our CEO, Maria Korsnick, often uh, refers to it as nuclear energy being at this inflection point. For years, there was support, and it was maintained at a constant level, but not growing. There wasn't significant momentum, actually, but in recent years, that has changed. Different constituencies have different reasons for their interest in nuclear, whether it's carbon reduction or jobs or national security or just reliability and resilience in certain areas. So overall, I think there is a vastly greater interest in nuclear energy, both at the federal level, the state level, and we see it internationally as well. A lot of opportunity now growing in international arenas for U.S. exporters, and so that will be a great benefit as well because combined with the interest at the domestic level, it will help us with our supply chain issues of rebuilding that supply chain over time. As it relates to the trends we see, there is much more interest in all of those areas in converting coal-powered sites to nuclear power. There are areas where the moratorium on nuclear energy needs to be lifted before that could proceed more aggressively, but there's a lot of interest in various states in particular, but even at the federal level on what would be required or what challenges might appear. But using the infrastructure at those sites for nuclear power and at the same time maintaining some jobs and reducing carbon is a win-win. We also see much more discussion about nuclear energy as an attractive product when People speak about balancing financial, political, and social responsibility 
factors comes up more often now in the ESG conversations. And finally, there is a growing attention on what we call new applications. Process heat has been discussed for some period of time. We mentioned hydrogen earlier. And then things like cryptocurrency and feeding those for electricity and beyond. At the state level, as they look at long-term energy plans and decarbonization goals, they also, I think, are looking at what could be done using nuclear energy and a lot of the same business development opportunities. Some of the examples at the state level you're aware of, such as Idaho has passed tax incentives to support carbon-free power. Wyoming, obviously, is very active now as TerraPower is, is locating a plant there, and they are also interested in replacing more coal plants with more modular reactors. There's activity in Nebraska, in Montana. They looked to peel their moratorium and withstood a recent effort to get a ballot initiative to undo that repeal. So I think the trend is very positive, particularly for the advanced reactor community as they design and deploy these plants over the next decade. Well, thanks, Bev. You also said one of my trigger words. I've gotten so interested in this nexus between crypto mining and energy. So now that you've said it out loud, I'm going to have to figure out how to do a podcast that talks about, frankly, the, the just amount of energy use that those crypto miners use. So thanks for bringing it up. You gave me an idea. I also appreciate you giving us time and frankly, just sharing your wealth of knowledge on nuclear policy with us. Look forward to talking again soon. Anytime we can share our story, we're happy to do so. So thank you, Brad. We hope you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI and the electric power industry, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.